This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So today I'm going to talk about snoring and sleep apnea. Um, I know it's a pretty popular topic. Um, so it's a pretty common issue, and I think the main goals of today are to focus on uh, the specifics of breathing during sleep, which is what this um, topic falls under. I'm going to mainly focus my talk on what happens in adults. I'll talk briefly about children as well. But our, our talk today, we'll talk about how air flows, the anatomy, uh, specifically of the nose and throat, which is where we think most of the snoring sound happens, um, discuss symptoms related to snoring uh, in specifics to sleep apnea and what we look for uh, in that sense and how to test for sleep apnea. Um, talk about what happens when breathing during sleep is altered and steps for evaluation of snoring and sleep apnea and some treatments. So, as you all well know, snoring is a very common problem. In all the population, about 20% of women and 40% of men uh, snore. The, this kind of rate goes up, so over the age of 60, uh, probably over 60% of patients can snore. Um, and so it is a very common um, thing. The most common symptom of sleep apnea is snoring, so about a third of those who do snore um, can be diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. Some of the risk factors associated with snoring are uh, increasing age, um, the male gender, uh, obesity, alcohol or uh, sedative use, smoking, and then uh, airway issues, so nasal blockage, asthma, and lung disease. So uh, today we'll be talking about the breathing and what happens during sleep. So when you breathe awake or asleep. The air is traveling from the outside, either through the nose or mouth, down um, the upper airway, which is the throat, into the windpipe, and down into the lungs. Um, when you're sleeping, how this works different is different than when you're awake. Um, and the dynamics of this are, are obviously regulated by your lungs. The lungs pull in the oxygen to the bloodstream and send that oxygen to the brain, so the brain plays a big role in all of sleep. Um, when we talk about snoring and sleep apnea, we're really mainly focusing in what we call the upper airway. And that includes the region of the nose, the back of the throat and tongue, back of the mouth, um, and kind of the throat region uh, before you get to the windpipe, which is also called the trachea. When we talk about these areas of the upper airway, um, we kind of look at this region and Every individual's size and shape of this area is unique. Um, this is one example of kind of ways that we look at it, and, but the size and shape of the tongue, the kind of back of the throat view is different for each person. And this, this same view that um, I'm going to show a little bit of video on is different when you look also in the back of the throat as well. Um, so the, the upper airway are lined by very specialized muscles you use every day to talk and to eat. And um, that's kind of some of the unique features of being human is that we can make some very complex sounds in speech, and, and that is all reliant on the muscles that line this throat area. So when we typically think about ducts and pipes that carry water or air or other fluids to different areas, um, we think of rigid structures. But in the human body, the space of the upper airway is not rigid because those muscles that you need to talk and eat are flexible. Um, and so that's the area of the throat. 
And then the muscles of the throat actually relax um, during sleep. Um, and so when you look at this, and I'll show you some video, you can actually notice that the um, cross-section or space isn't perfectly circular and doesn't say, stay the same shape and size, that that space actually collapses and moves and is dynamic when you sleep. So the thought behind snoring is that the sound is actually generated when you go to sleep and those muscles relax, and so the airspace in the upper throat is a little collapsed, and you get actually flutter of the tissues against each other, and that creates the snoring sound. The most common snoring sound source is this uvula, um, and this is kind of what you see. I'll go back a little bit with this little palate and uvula that we all have hanging down. So then when, the, when these um, th tissues flutter against each other, you get those um, sounds in, and during snoring. So in my clinic, there's a couple ways of looking at this area. Um, we can do a simple exam in the office at the back of the throat, but we actually have a very specialized scope or exam that we can do that um, involves numbing the nose and throat very simply and introducing a very small three millimeter fiber optic camera that allows us to look in the back of the nose and down the throat. And I'm gonna show you a video of this. So if you don't enjoy looking at these videos, um, I apologize, but this is pretty typical. We all kind of look uh, very similar on the inside. So we're going in the left nostril. This is the septum and the inferior turbinate within the nose. The turbinates are specialized structures in the nose that are basically your body's air filter and humidifier. And um, as we pass to the back of the nose, to look at that upper throat area. We're looking at the back of the nose, we call this the nasopharynx. This is the back of the palate, back of the tongue. This is the back of your tongue. <clears throat> and as we go down further, you will be able to see, this is the epiglottis and voice box. You're gonna see some vocal cords here. So as you vocalize, the vocal cords will move in and out I think there's a little better view. There they are, vocal cords. Beyond the vocal cords is the windpipe down into the lungs. When you swallow and eat food, this epiglottis actually flips over the voice box to protect it, and the food goes down the esophagus, which is in the back. So this is what we're calling the upper airway. There's a variety of structures here that can um, change the size and shape. That's basically the tongue. You do have tonsil tissue throughout. That's what you're seeing, the lumpy bumpy here. Taste buds. And that's kind of a normal awake exam. Let me see if I can, okay. So I'm gonna show you some video of what happens when you go to sleep. So this was kind of the best example I could um, find that was the best analogy to some of the collapse that you can see. So this is a, a physics website that was showing the collapse of um, pipes under external pressure, what can happen to the size and shape of rigid pipes. And um, I think this is very similar, and see what you think here. Okay. So this is a sleep endoscopy. So of course I would love to sneak home and, and be able to do that same exam when, when asleep. But actually what we do is we take patients and we, um, under a little bit of sedative and anesthesia, have them fall asleep and be able to look at the exam while sleeping. So this is a couple patients, but this is that same space in the airway at the back of the palate. This is the uvula. 
and you can see the flutter of the tissue that's happening as this person snores. And that's creating a snoring sound. I'm sorry, I don't have sound hooked up here. But that, that collapse and that kind of bent shape. This is a different pattern of collapse. Everyone's is different. Same space, but you can see it maybe a little bit more severe. Maybe it forms like more of a circle instead of a flattened donut. And this patient actually has very large uh, palatine tonsils. Some of us had those removed when we were children. But this person has very big tonsils in the back that's actually contributing to part of this. You're going to see that uvula kind of flip up here. And that's that same space. So all different things that can happen when you're sleeping. This is just another example at a different level, just because there is a dynamic portion to the upper airway. It's not just one fixed area. So I think this should show. I wanted to show some at the tongue level, but I'm hoping. Oh, I think it didn't. Hold on. That's the same video. Here's the um, base of tongue. So we're a little lower down on the camera. You're seeing this tongue, the back of the tongue area here. Kind of more generalized collapse. And then I'm going to turn... Oh, this one actually does have snoring. This one, the epiglottis actually contributes the most, and you can flips over like a lid and um, actually creates the snoring sound you can see. Oh, I didn't know they actually hooked it up. <laughs> so what are the effects of snoring, right? Kind of the biggest and most common impact and why patients are coming in specifically for snoring is because the bed partner has some complaints. It obviously can lead to impaired sleep quality for both parties in question um, and uh, relationship issues. I mean, there are certain partners that can't sleep together because of the snoring issue. Um, secondhand snoring uh, is a term. Um, once treated, there is evidence that the bed partner quality of life and thus the actual per patient's quality of life increased. Uh, sleepiness and depression scores all improved. So this is an important issue, uh, not just for the person snoring, but of course for the family as well. Um, there is evidence that more snoring or more frequent snoring is related to more sleepiness. So there's a, a score or a scale that's used to kind of grade how sleepy you are. Um, anything above a 10 is usually considered um, increased fatigue during the daytime. So this is a self-reported um, study that was done in 6,000 patients. And they measured, or they asked them how often they snored, how many days or nights per week, and then looked at the sleepiness score and correlated and found there was an increase in sleepiness the more often somebody snored. And these are patients without sleep apnea, just pure snoring. Same, the louder the snoring was also related to worse sleepiness. Um, so this is maximal snore intensity in decibels, which is how we measure sound loudness and the sleepiness score, and there is a relationship between those. So that leads me to talk about what happens in obstructive sleep apnea. So if you take and think about um, snoring 
and um, kind of break it down, there is a spectrum. So there are people that just snore and have no sleep apnea. There are a lot of people with sleep apnea who snore. But the actual way we think about sleep apnea is what happens is there's repeated collapse of that airway I was showing you during sleep, but that that collapse leads to oxygen, um, a reduced oxygen levels uh, to the lungs and body. And that obviously impacts sleep type, depth, and quality. Um, when your brain isn't getting the, the type of, um, the, the amount of oxygen it needs, it'll actually wake you up uh, to um, more superficial layers of sleep so that you can improve your muscle tone and that there's less collapse and get the air you need, but that does impact how you sleep. Um, sleep apnea is actually measured with a sleep study test. There's versions of this where you come into the sleep lab. Um, they put on a variety of monitors to measure uh, sleep staging, oxygen levels, heart rate, among other things. Um, and they're basically measuring how many times the airflow um, into the body is being reduced, correlated to oxygen level changes, sleep position, and it measures this number we call the apnea hypopnea index, which is essentially the number of times an hour there is a reduction in airflow and oxygenation to the body. This can be done in the lab. There's also home studies now, which is a fantastic tool uh, to also screen for this, and that is um, stuff. That's, those are tests done by our sleep lab. Um, so some of the health risks involved and associated with untreated sleep apnea include high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, obesity, motor vehicle accidents if you're sleepy and driving, daytime sleepiness, and impaired work performance. So an important topic um, requiring um, some attention. So as you can tell, this is my favorite picture. But this is what happens in sleep apnea, that instead of just flutter of tissue, there's collapse of tissue so, so that there is no space for the air to flow down into the lungs. So the spectrum starts with just normal nighttime breathing, no snoring. Primary snoring, which is defined by that number on the sleep study of AHI less than five, which is normal. Um, mild, moderate, and severe sleep apnea, depending on how often or how severe that collapse is. Um, so some, some links of snoring and sleep apnea is louder snoring associated with sleep apnea. Um, there is some evidence showing, obviously, it's still there's still a big range, but um, that the louder the snoring does correlate with um, the severity of sleep apnea. And in evaluating snoring, it is important for your doctors to know about daytime sleepiness, daytime fatigue. Are you falling asleep during activities or work where you don't want to be? Um, what the bed partner reports, is there any gasping or pauses in the breathing during sleep? Sometimes it's hard to catch or hear. Um, and then that helps focus into the goals of treatment, the exam, and, and we'll talk a bit about some treatment options. So things that impact both sleep apnea and snoring um, that we focus on first are kind of lifestyle things. Uh, being overweight is going to lead to more collapse. We actually and I'll, I'll talk a bit about this. We actually put fat in our tongue and in our neck, and that kind of adds to the amount of collapse that can happen. Um, sleep position, lying on the back, is worse than the side because when you're in back gravity pulls that tongue back and creates more collapse. 
alcohol and sedative use, especially right before bedtime. So that nightcap is going to lead to more muscle tone loss and more collapse. Um, An untreated acid reflux, if it's getting up into the throat, it'll inflame tissues and add to that blockage that can happen. So this is an example of some of the things people try, um, side sleeping, back sleeping. A lot of us think that we're sleeping in a certain position, but um, most of us are sleeping in many positions at night. Um, This is an example of a sleep positioner someone's using to stay on their sides. So to talk about weight loss, we look at BMI, which is the body mass index. That's how it's calculated. Um, And it's uh, graded on, um, you know, a normal range, overweight range, obese and very obese. Surgery, which is something I counsel people on, uh, just doesn't work that well for those who um, are obese. Um, And the way that Um, weight plays a role in sleep apnea is tongue fat actually is correlated with BMI and you can actually put fat in the tongue and when people ask how much weight do I have to lose to impact the snoring and sleep apnea it's probably about a 10% weight loss to get a significant change in um, some of that uh, some of that problem so positive pressure and why does it work Um, If you've heard about CPAP, that's something that a lot of people um, have tried for sleep apnea. It's our first-line treatment. It's non-invasive. It's something that um, we encourage everyone to try and start with. It's a continuous positive pressure support for uh, during sleep. So basically, with various mask interfaces, uh, pushes air, gives your pressure in the air that kind of keeps the airway open. So it stents the airway open by that pressure that's, um, that's being applied through the machine. Um, different mask interfaces are, are exist, different machines exist, various settings can be done, and this is done with a sleep medicine physician. Um, a lot of people say, well, the CPAP might work, but I can't really get to use it, and so there's a lot of things that can be done to improve how it's used and how you can tolerate it. We encourage everyone to get used to using it, so wearing it before you actually have to go to sleep so that your body kind of gets used to having something on the face. It's just not um, necessarily natural for everyone. Um, Improving breathing through the nose, whether that's treating allergies or some congestion, um, so that um, breathing through the nose is easier and wearing that mask is easier. I encourage everyone to use CPAP because really it helps you figure out if you breathe better at night, do you actually feel better? And that's um, an important factor in determining what um, next steps you want to do in treatment. If it works well, that's fantastic. If it doesn't, then we can talk about other options. Um, CPAP is adjustable and titratable to you. It can be individualized, and that's a big positive and a huge, um, a huge thing we have to use um, to treat it. Other sleep issues have to be managed. So if you have insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, that's a different kind of problem. Um, and so that also has to be managed. And then if you're not sleeping enough, you're also going to be sleepy. So if, um, the amount that you need to sleep varies for each person. We're not going to talk about that in detail. That's a bit of the sleep neurology. Other people have tried oral appliances. This is a mouth guard designed to fit between the teeth at night. The idea is it supports this kind of lower jaw, and so there's less collapse of the tongue and the back behind this. Um, this is designed either by dental providers or d- different practitioners that will design this. This is molded usually to your teeth. 
can be adjusted for the amount of kind of jaw support that you need to prevent some of the collapse. The way to know if it works is to get a, a sleep test done after the guard is made to really know if it's improving the sleep apnea. There are people that swear by this, um, and that works really well for their snoring and sleep apnea, and so it's really hard to know if it's going to work for you unless, unless it's something you've tried. Some other interesting things you might have heard in the news, exercises for snoring. So um, this was born out of some interesting studies uh, from Brazil, actually, that found that snoring and um, sleep-disordered breathing are actually less common in singers and specifically in musicians that played a a special wind instrument called the didgeridoo. So this is an African wind instrument. As you can imagine, it takes a lot of upper throat muscles to play this um, instrument. And this... um, bore out a a small study that was done looking at um, can you do exercises to change snoring and sleep apnea. So this was a very small study, but they did show that those that were um, consistent with the regimen, which was um, some exercises uh, uh, done on the uh, the tongue and throat and cheek um, for eight minutes, uh, three times a day, um, there was a decrease in snoring by about 50%, depending on the measure that you used. And this was um, in a very specific population um, to look at snoring. Um, it probably isn't something that's going to cure everyone, but it, it, it is a, an interesting and very intriguing um, thing that we may need more data on. Um, so when CPAP doesn't work and some of these other non-invasive options don't work, um, patients will come to me and talk about options for surgery. Um, The idea and thought process behind surgery is to um, look at the sites of obstruction, see if what can be done to change either the anatomy or the physiology of what happens during sleep. So the classic way of thinking about surgery is we're trying to create more space in this upper airway or a more um, support so there's less collapse or um, support or change that change in muscle tone during sleep. And so there's a variety of ways of doing that. So the way I think about surgery is when non-invasive options fail because um, you want to sign up for surgery once, once the um, you know, less risky non-invasive options are, are not there. Uh, the goal is to reduce collapse that happens during sleep and create that space. One kind of class of surgery, and this is a variety of surgeries um, that are lumped together, is uh, soft tissue surgery, which involves, and not everyone's a candidate, but removing tonsils and um, changing the shape of that soft palate so there's less collapse at that level. Um, You can also do surgery for tonsils at the back of the tongue, the ones that you saw in the video, Um, base of tongue surgery and epiglottis surgery, depending on the level of collapse. This is called soft tissue surgery because we're altering the anatomy of the soft tissue of the upper throat along those muscles um, and removing tissue that can be removed, such as tonsil tissue. Um, This class of of surgery is often done in children. Um, In children, different than adults, the most common uh, cause of um, blockage in the upper airway are big tonsils and adenoids. All the videos you saw were adults, so they didn't have adenoid tissue because adenoid tissue tends to shrink um, as we age. Um, Same with tonsil tissue. But this is an example of somebody with kind of more normal-sized tonsils to someone with huge tonsils that is blocking the back of the throat. 
Another class of surgery includes bony and jaw surgery. Um, this is done in partnership with our oral maxillofacial surgeons, um, where uh, small cuts are made in the, the upper and lower jaw through the mouth, and basically um, the upper and lower jaw are advanced a little bit to basically provide support to the tissues in the back and the tongue, so there's less collapse there. This is very similar to some of the surgery done for orthognathic surgery for bite uh, and teeth fitting, and it uh, can work really well for sleep apnea in the right patient. Some of the newer things that um, people are hearing a little bit more about um, Hypoglossal nerve stimulation. This is an FDA-approved treatment that was approved in 2014, so really recent. Um, and the idea behind this therapy is it's an implant, um, very similar to a pacemaker, um, that's implanted under the skin. It has a wire that leads up to the nerve that controls the tongue, um, and this nerve controls the muscle tone of the upper airway and then another lead that goes down on the chest wall to sense when you're breathing. And the idea is um, the patient can turn on with this remote at night, um, so it's only active at night, and the um, device will basically stimulate the nerve and override the muscle tone loss that you get when you go to sleep. So this is a little bit of a schematic. So without stimulation, there's collapse specifically, especially at the back of the tongue, which is one common area for sleep apnea. With mild stimulation, the, that, that tongue muscle stiffens and tightens and actually moves forward and opens up the back of the um, up throat and the upper airway, the important areas that air needs to flow. Let me see. Oh, this one actually had a video. So this is an example of collapse prior and then after. It's a little bit subtle in these videos. Okay. So the goals of any treatment for sleep apnea and for snoring are to reduce the symptoms, which include daytime fatigue, snoring, improve quality of life measures for both the person snoring and the, and the uh, family and bed partner, minimize health risks such as mortality, um, heart heart risks, and obviously motor vehicle accidents, uh, improve quality of life so uh, the person can work and do, do all the things they enjoy during the daytime. Um, all treatment usually starts with a positive pressure trial, so the CPAP machine, um, and the treatment is individualized and depends on things like the severity of the problem, health factors, and of course patient choice because there's no one perfect answer. So... Um, in conclusion, um, not all snoring is the same. Things to try for snoring are weight reduction, positional sleep, so things that keep you on your side during the sleep. Um, watch alcohol use, especially right before bedtime. Managing acid reflux. If there are signs and symptoms of sleep apnea, get tested, because that's really our way to know um, how severe the disease is. Um, sleep apnea treatment starts with positive pressure, um, and other options exist if that doesn't work. Thank you. So she was asking about tongue fat and a clarification on my statement, thank you for the reminder, on um, how, how tongue fat changes in the, and uh, specifically it's related to weight, gaining weight can actually add to the fat in the tongue, which adds to the collapse that can happen in sleep apnea. There are procedures that can be done on the tongue itself. 
Um, obviously, the risk and recovery are different for that uh, kind. But yes, there are surgeries to reduce tongue size to stiffen the tongue tissue. Um, that's part of the soft tissue kind of realm of surgery. Yes. So the question is about exercises that can improve muscle tone, because muscle tone is a component of sleep and snoring, um, sleep apnea and snoring. Yes. So the exercises are kind of uh, a few of the ones I outlined just in pictures. Um, There are a few online. If you search exercises for sleep apnea, they'll go through the the regimen that was based on that paper that they did. Um, They usually involve um, kind of tongue exercises within the mouth, um, cheek and palate muscle exercises, and they'll show you, basically demonstrate how to do it. Um, With any exercise, um, you do have to kind of stick to the regimen for it to work. Um, And if you don't do it, it tends to not work as well. So So the question is, if someone doesn't snore, can they still have sleep apnea? Um, The answer is yes. Um, 80% of patients who have sleep apnea probably snore, but there are a certain subset of patients that have the blockage and, and at least no one's witnessed the snoring. So yes. Yeah. Um, so the question's about what surgery, how long does it take, and what the recovery is like. It depends on the kind of surgery. So there's a lot of different kinds of surgery. I kind of grouped them into different classes. Um, if you have to operate on the tongue versus the tonsils and palate, jaw, or the implant, all have different lengths of time and recover, time of recovery. Most of the surgeries involve either going home the same day or staying overnight one or two days and going home the next, that kind of a few nights in the hospital. Um, depend The more surgery that's done in the throat, like changing the anatomy of the throat by removing tonsils, for example, I don't know if anyone's had their tonsils out as an adult, but it um, hurts quite a bit because it's such a sensitive area that we use to talk and eat every day. And so um, just simply having tonsils out hurts quite a bit for two weeks. Um, and But that's still one of the most common surgeries done. So it's... Um, it depends on the reason for doing it and what's actually being done. So that varies. It's a good question. Yeah. So the question is, there's a lot of pillows on the market as a device that can um, alter snoring. Um, there's no direct study that studies each type of pillow. Um, the way I think about pillows are ones that will basically change the position of um, that fights that anti that gravity effect of pulling the tongue and all the tissues backwards. So pillows that kind of keep you on your side are going to work better than ones on your back. There's one on the market now, I believe, that tries to pick up on the snoring sound and then change the height of the pillow or the configuration or basically move you, um, which sharp elbows from someone sleeping next to you can do too. Um, and so, um, yeah, so sleep position can work. Um, how dependent snoring is on position varies by the person. So I would say there's not, again, one, one device that works for everyone, but it's, it, it might be something that works, especially if someone notes that you snore only on your, si- on your back and not on your side. <laughs> so the question is about tonsils. Um, back in the day, a lot of people were getting all children were getting their tonsils out, and what happens now? Um, So yes, the guidelines for for tonsil removal for children has changed quite a bit from back in that time, and so most children are not having their tonsils removed unless they have snoring and sleep apnea or um, infections in their tonsils um, that require removal. So that it's a a different paradigm than it was um, in that era. Um, the question is about CPAP and positive pressure because the mask is typically on the nose, 
um, some masks can cover actually the nose and mouth too, um, and how that works because, like I was talking about, most of the anatomy of sleep apnea is collapse of the throat. Um, so when when positive pressure is delivered, because we do it through the easiest interface, which is some kind of mask either on the nose or on the nose and mouth, um, the pressure is delivered through the mask, through a machine, and it's pushing air. It's different air pressure than you just breathing. And that pressurized air um, applies pressure from the whole space, from the nose down to the windpipe. And so it's pushing the walls of the whole upper airway open. So that pressure works for the whole space. And so even though the, the air is being delivered through the nose, that because it's pressure, that pressure is actually... If you think about air being pushed through a pipe, it's being pushed on all the walls along the whole pipe um, and down through it. And so it does work and um, work for all levels of collapse kind of at once. And so that's kind of the way I think about it, if that makes sense. So the question is, is sleep apnea progressive, um, meaning the settings of the CPAP, do they have to go up or ever get to the point where they need surgery because the the disease gets more progressive. I, I think the answer to that is it, it varies, but typically um, things that make sleep apnea affect the severity of disease or weight um, a little bit in age, but I don't think there's a dramatic change, at least very quickly over time, but obviously every person's a little bit different to answer that question. Okay, well, let's do question one. Um, so one question was um, specifically the machine use and um, for you who uses your machine most nights, um, but say there's a certain time where you can't use the machine, what are the risks involved in not using the machine, if I understand correctly? Um, <clears throat> so obviously it's, it's not an on or off question, right? So the more you use your machine, the more hours of sleep a night that you get with the machine and having your sleep apnea treated, the better. It reduces your risks and health risks overall. And that includes the risks for heart disease, the risk for sudden cardiac death, which is what you're probably referring to. Um, and so overall, that goes down. For the one night that you don't use it, it's really hard to predict, you know, is that all of a sudden. But no, I think overall, lowering the bar and using it 90% of the time is going to be much better than using it 50% of the time or less. And so... Um, it's hard to guarantee what would happen in that one night, but um, obviously if you're doing everything you can and you're close to that kind of mark, then um, I'm treating your sleep apnea optimally is the best that you could do. Yeah, so the question is about um, nasal passages. So he was um, this uh, participant is asking about spurs in the nasal cavity. If they were removed, will that impact sleep apnea? Um, it's a fantastic question. So the nose is important in the airway. It's probably not the direct reason for sleep apnea, but it does impact how you breathe during sleep. Um, we do know that <clears throat> improving nasal airflow, either through surgery or medical things, so improving how you breathe through your nose, does improve sleep quality. It can improve sleep apnea slightly. It's very unlikely to cure sleep apnea by itself, um, and it can improve snoring. Um, that's a separate question. So the question is, will it reduce sinusitis and sinus infections? That's a question about sinus surgery, which are a little bit on the side of the nose, um, and that's specific to each person. It's an individualized question, so... 
Yeah, so the question is, what's the difference between CPAP and BiPAP, which is the other one, and when to use them? Um, so um, CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure. Um, it is generalized, uh, g the most common used um, device to apply um, pressure when you're trying to breathe in during sleep. BiPAP is actually two pressures, so two pressure levels, and they actually set it for inspiration at one pressure and expiration at another pressure. Um, and depending on the type of sleep apnea, whether there's lung disease involved, each person has different requirements. So usually your sleep medicine physician will um, talk to you about, about the options or do a sleep study with different devices to tell you what works best for your problem. So the question is, if you cough at night and have other breathing problems, does the BiPAP help with that? Um, not specifically for coughing and breathing, but there are medical issues for each patient that do, and that so, that would require a sleep physician to recommend BiPAP. Um, it depends a bit on severity of disease and other medical problems, um, and we're getting into the specifics of the machinery. So, um, it's a good question. So the question is, if people can adapt to high altitude, where you're getting a different oxygen level. Um, or used to breathing in a different oxygen level, um, versus adapt and not have as the same health risks associated with sleep apnea and those patients being used to lower oxygen level. So the oxygen level variation that you get when you're always at high altitude is probably very different than what you're getting at night and having com um, intermittent collapse. So there's more of the fluctuation that you can get when you're having sleep apnea. Um, it's a little bit different physiology and what's happening when you live at a constant different air pressure versus um, when you're having collapse and perhaps episodes of no airflow at night, which is more something that's happening in the anatomy of the delivery of the air to the lung versus how the oxygen is interchanged between the lung and the bloodstream, which is kind of more into the physiology of what happens when you're constantly breathing at a different air pressure, if that helps answer the question. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but it's a bit of a different physiology and probably related to what levels of oxygenation and how they're changing. Yeah, so the question is muscle tone in the upper airway, and for those that have TMJ, where patients clench or grind their teeth because the muscles of the jaw are chronically tight, um, and how that influences tone of the upper airway. Um, so the muscle tone we're talking about specifically is what happens at night when you're asleep. And they're actually regulated by different kind of ner nervous system connections. Um, it's a great question. I don't think anyone's actually ever answered directly about TMJ relationship. TMJ is very common. And a lot of people clench and grind during sleep, um, both those with and without sleep apnea. So I don't know if there's any direct correlation um, the consequences of TMJ, of course, are you can get jaw pain, fractured teeth, and things like that. And um, it does inform kind of some of the therapies that can be done. So if you have active TMJ, it can be harder to wear some of the guards designed for sleep apnea because they're pulling at the jaw in a different way. And if the muscles are already tight, it can be more uncomfortable. And so we do advocate often that the TMJ should be treated before um, trying some of these other, especially the oral appliance device that I showed. So I'm going to wrap up, and I'm going to be here for a little longer to answer more questions, but I thank you all for coming.
and asking all of your fabulous questions. So. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.